All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. And let me pray. Father, thank you that your word shows us the glory of Jesus Christ on every page. Lord, help us today to see our Savior in these pages in this Old Testament book. And as we see him, Lord, May he be exalted. And may we be reminded of what he has done for us through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you and have life in you. Lord, thank you for this book. These are the words of life that you have given us. May they be words of life this morning. May you, may you speak to the people that you love, Lord, that you, you saved. May, may each person here hear your voice through these words because these words are your voice. Oh, Lord, may, may it thunder with truth and love and hope and faith. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so is it amen or amen? Either one. Homeschooling moms? <laughs> Either one. All right, well, the first, we're in the book of Esther. Um, each week as I, as I go through our material, um, I take a moment at the beginning of the message to review what has gone on. There's a number of reasons. One is that, um, you know, Peter and Paul both wrote that it is, it is helpful, it is good to be reminded, to be reminded of the truth, to be reminded of the things that, that you've heard before. And um, weeks, a week goes by and we can lose some of the details. Uh, so, so it's helpful to be reminded. But also, for those who are visiting, it's also helpful to, to share where we are in our, in our series, in our story in the book of Esther. And so as I do that each week, um, dive right in with me uh, because it just helps you to reconnect with the, the truth of God's word and what we have uh, spoken of prior to this Sunday. Now, the first six chapters of the book of Esther are filled with, with dark days. It appears that you know, in, those, in those chapters, the people of God who have been exiled in Persia are going to be utterly destroyed by a wicked man named Haman. Uh, if that happens, if that destruction takes place, if the edict that Haman, the king's second in command, fulfills, if that edict takes place, the reality is, is that God's redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan that has been seen from Genesis 1 all the way through, and when you get to the Gospels, that redemptive plan will not come to pass because if the Jewish people are, as it says in, in the book of Esther, destroyed, annihilated, and killed, and it is totally a wipeout from, from the all 127 promises, the entire size of the Persian kingdom from India to Ethiopia, every Jew under this edict is to be killed, to be exterminated. If that 
happens, if that comes to pass, there is no Jewish nation left. And if there is no Jewish nation left, there is no family line that produces Jesus Christ. But as we read on, as we read on in chapter 7, the story comes back into the light of God's good providence as he protects his people and he fulfills his redemptive plan. But, but, but even though Haman in chapter 7 we see is, is taken out, he is, he is put to death, he's impaled on this 75 foot high stake that he created for his, his enemy Mordecai, even as Haman is put to death, the story is not yet over. At the end of Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam, Frodo's close friend and companion, awakens to find the friends he thought had died alive and around him. Gandalf, he said, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he says this, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Chapter 8 in the book of Esther, shows us that in God's continuing providence, everything sad will one day come untrue. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. That it all comes in, as Sam's perspective, it all comes untrue. Now, as I have over these, these past months now going through the book of Esther, we've looked at each, each teaching from the setting, the story, and the saving, surprising hidden providences of God. So the setting, the setting of the story. In chapter 6, we read that King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, he goes to bed one night and he simply cannot sleep. He can't sleep. The ordinary, this ordinary, unremarkable event is a work, as we look back now, of God's hidden providence. As, as God turns around a dire situation. Haman, King Ahasuerus, is second in command, is a, man who has, is a man who craves honor. And in the capital city of Susa, where Haman is located, where the king is located, um, as he goes by the king's gate each day, everybody is supposed to bow to Haman. But there's one man who refuses to bow to Haman. As we all know, that is Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai will not bow to Haman, and Haman is enraged by it. So enraged that Haman builds a spike, a stake, 75 feet high to impale Mordecai on it. He, Haman is the one who, who, because he hates Mordecai, he now hates all the Jews. He goes to the king. He has an edict written up to destroy all the Jews, and the first one he wants to kill is Mordecai. And so, he builds this stake, but he has to get the king's permission <clears throat> excuse me, to kill Mordecai. And so he can't, he can't sleep either. He's, just, he's awake, and he's just, I, I, I want to get permission. And so he goes very, very early to the king's palace. And sure enough, King Ahasuerus has been awake all night. And in his being awake all night, he reads from the book of memorable deeds from five years ago, and he reads about Mordecai, this Jew who sits at the king's gate, who serves in the king's court. This Jew has saved his life. This Jew un un unveiled a plot against the king, but the king never rewarded him. So when, when Haman walks in, the king looks at Haman and says, hey, Haman, there's a man I delight in. What should I do for the man I delight in? And Haman thinks, well, that's me. I'm the guy he delights in. I'm the second in command. Everybody worships me. I, I, so, so Haman comes up with this elaborate, 
honoring. Put him in the king's robes, put him on the king's horse, have the, one of the best nobles lead him through the city of Susa, shouting, this is the man the king delights in. And Haman just loves his plan. And the king goes, that is, that's a great plan. And, and I, want, I want to do this. And I want to do it for Mordecai. And Haman is just stunned. And then the king goes, I goes, listen, I want you to hurry because I want you to be the one to do it. I want you leading the horse through the city. And I want you proclaiming Mordecai is the man I delight in. God in his divine providence turns the tables as the king has revealed Mordecai as one. Now, in a stunning reversal in chapter 7, Haman's plot against Mordecai is exposed. Haman comes to a second banquet that Queen Esther has requested, and he meets his unexpected end as Queen Esther reveals that Mordecai is the one that wants, or Haman is the one that wants to kill the Jews, kill her, kill Mordecai. And so she springs this trap, and Haman ends up being dragged from the king's presence with a black bag over his head. He's taken away, he's impaled on this spike, this spike that he actually built in his own yard. So that he could look up and see Mordecai, his hated enemy, impaled every day. And his family could see it. And then we get to chapter 8. And that's where chapter 8 opens up. Chapter 8 opens up on the same day as Haman is impaled on this spike. This is where we begin. Look with me and read alongside with me in chapter 8. So on that day... The day that Haman has been impaled. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, And I am pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hand on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. 
The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to, and this may seem similar to you, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of the king of Hashras, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What an amazing story. Now, there are three parts to this part of the story. This, this chapter begins with what appears to be a very happy, happy ending. In verse, verses 1 and 2, the king gives Esther um, all of Haman's wealth and all of Haman's possessions. When it says that she is given the house of Haman, it means his land, it means his bank account, it means his servants, it means anything that belongs to Haman becomes hers. And, and just as God, as we saw in Exodus, the Jews were allowed to plunder the Egyptians. Uh, here, God has done the same thing with Esther. He allows Esther and Mordecai, in a sense, to plunder their enemy, Haman. Now, the first part is we see in this step Esther's request, verses 3 through 6. Now, now Haman is gone, and, and it appears, okay, the worst is over. This enemy of the Jews, this man who wrote this edict to destroy all the Jews, he is dead. And so all, all should be well. But if you remember back in chapter 3, Haman, Haman deceives King Ahasuerus by having him sign an edict to, and as he writes, to destroy, annihilate, and kill all the Jews because of his hatred for Mordecai. And it's an edict signed by the king and sealed by the king's Ring, And if you remember in verse 8, in chapter 8, but you may write it as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what does that tell you about Haman's edict? It cannot be revoked. 
The edict to destroy the Jews cannot be revoked. So even though Haman is dead, the edict still stands. And on the 12th month, on the 13th day, the month of Adar, the Haman edict will be carried out. So even though Haman is gone, it will be carried out. The law of the Persians and the Medes is that any edict signed by the king and sealed by his ring is irrevocable. It cannot be undone. In other words, you cannot get the toothpaste back into this tube. There, there's, no, there's no hope of changing it. So in nine months, on that day, on that 13th day, all will take place. So Esther goes before the king and then Esther spoke to the king and she fell at his feet and she wept and she pleaded with him to avert this evil plan. Now, she makes a bold move here. If you remember back earlier in, in chapter 4, she, she goes to the king and if you are not summoned by the king, standing next to the king, always standing next to the king, is a man with a sword. A warrior with a sword. If someone approaches the king without the king summoning him, that person will lose their head. If the king extends his royal scepter, that person is accepted by the king and can come and speak with him. Now, there, there's no royal scepter being extended to Esther here. Yeah, she's in the king's presence, but she goes directly to him. She approaches him and she falls at his feet and she weeps and she, she pleads with him. She, with great tears and great emotion, she intercedes on behalf of her people to spare their lives from death. Esther spoke to them. She fell at his feet. She wept. She pleaded in verse 3 and she told him about the, this devised plan from Haman against the Jews. And so the king at that point holds out his golden scepter to her. Which means she can continue on. And what she does is that she, she rises before the king. And then she very wisely, she very wisely, knowing that this, this is the king, she very wisely pleads with him with this if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing before the king. Four times she expresses humility to the king to honor him. Four times it's a bold move but she wisely humbles herself before this king. But here's the problem all of Esther's pleading cannot change what is irreversible Persian law. Irrevocable law will not change. This is one request that he cannot fulfill. Now, if you remember when Esther first approached the king back in chapter 4 and 5, and he holds out his golden scepter to her, you know, she, he says, King Esther, what is it that you want? What is your request? I will give you whatever you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And Esther's response is, I'd like to have a banquet. I take half the kingdom. She takes a banquet. <laughs> so, and I just want you and Haman there. And so they have a banquet. At the end of the banquet, King Ahasuerus is curious. So he says, 
Esther, what, what is it you want? What, what is it you request up to half my kingdom? And a second time, Esther says, well, I want to have another banquet. And I want Haman and you to be there. So the next day, there's a banquet. And sure enough, King Ahasuerus is on the edge of his seat. Esther, what do you want up to half my kingdom? What is your request? And that's when she reveals the plot of Haman and Haman is put to death. Here's the problem. Three times, three times King Ahasuerus has offered Esther whatever she wants. But he can't deliver here. He can't change irrevocable Persian law. You know, this, even as she states her, her case powerfully, he can't unwrite what has already been written. But as much as the king has been foolish and stupid throughout the story, and he has, he's been foolish and stupid, he is aware, he's aware that in nine months, not only will the Jews be killed, but now his wife, his queen, Esther, who is Jewish, who identified herself with Mordecai the Jew in verse 1 of chapter 8, now he knows his wife is under the same edict. So that's Esther's request. Save us. The second part is the king's solution. He comes up with a solution. He can't undo the edict, but he knows what can be done. And so in verses 7 and 8, he tells Esther what can be done. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so Mordecai is wearing the king's signet ring, the one that Haman was wearing. Mordecai is now second in command of the entire Persian empire. Mordecai now can write an edict. And so he writes one of his own. That is the king's solution. I can't revoke that edict. Oh, but you can write another. And now that's the third part is Mordecai's resolution of this problem. Verses 8 9 through 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. It was an edict that was sent to all 127 provinces. It was an edict that was sent from India to Ethiopia. It was an edict that was written in the language of every people. When you're talking about a Persian empire, a kingdom that big, you have Many languages throughout the, the empire. Many, many provinces with different languages. When, when I, I've been to India, India is made up of 28 states now. Every state has its own language. And in each state, in each language, there are hundreds of different dialects. So you could be in one part of the state of India and not understand the dialect even though you speak the state language. That's what's going on here in 
in this edict being sent out. So all of the, the edicts are sent out to all of the entire empire, the entire provinces in everybody's own language. And it's written in the name of the king and it's sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters are mounted, and I love this, it's mounted on, on the king's horses, the king's stud, the swift horses, the horses that were used in the king's service, couriers taking them on swift horses. Mordecai is making sure. It's a big province. Nine months, yeah, nine months and Haman's edict comes to pass. But nine months is not a long time when you're talking about going from India to Ethiopia and you're not flying. And so he swift horses saying, and, and here's, what, here's what the edict, here's the whole point of what the edict is. Haman writes this in verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives against Haman's edict to, and he uses these words, he, he echoes Haman's edict. He says to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Mordecai gets around Persian law. He's summoned the scribes. He's written in their language. He tells the Jews they can defend themselves against those who try to fulfill the edict. Interestingly, the first edict is to take place on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And of course, that's when Mordecai's edict takes place. And it's a one-day edict. In other words, Haman's edict said on one day, you can annihilate all the Jews. Just one day. And now the same thing happens. Mordecai says you can on one day defend all the Jews. Now what, what is, what's wonderfully humorous, and the author has these moments in his story of Esther. I, just the very last verse, part of verse 17. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. <laughs> For fear, the Jews, for fear the Jews had fallen on them. They didn't declare themselves Jews because they had had a conversion. <laughs> They're not declaring themselves Jews because they've suddenly come to a knowledge of the Holy One. No, they declared themselves Jews because I don't want to get killed. They declared themselves Jews just so they would be identified with the Jews. This is, this is an amazing story of, of God's providence in the lives of people. The, the, the setting and the story, this story where, where God has turned the tables, where, where Mordecai was going to be put to death, Mordecai is the one who raises to prominence. And, and because Mordecai is in this position, because he has been raised up to second in command, he can now write the edict that saves the Jews. And that's part three the saving providences of God, verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king because the decree was issued in the, in the capital city of Susa. 
all is going out. So Mordecai goes out into the city from the presence of the king in his royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown on his head and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced as Mordecai walks through the city. Now Haman wanted people to shout and rejoice when he walked through the city. In fact, he wanted it so badly, he must have been very well disliked because the king, if you remember in chapter 3, the king had to write an edict saying you must bow down and worship Haman. <laughs> There's no edict here that say you have to bow down and worship Mordecai. Oh no, Mordecai, Mordecai just goes out and, and as the second in command now, people are just beside themselves. And the edict that has gone out in the city of Susa, there's rejoicing, there's shouting. Do you remember what happened at the end of chapter 3 when Haman wrote the edict? The end of chapter 3, it says that the city of Susa, when they read this edict, was thrown into confusion. And that's not what's happening here. The city, and in every province, and in every city, wherever the king's command and edict reached, this was the, the edict of Mordecai, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. God has fulfilled his covenant promise through his hidden providential work. But sadly, sadly, there's, there's something missing here. If you're astute, you, you know what it is. Let me read it again. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. What's missing? Sadly, what's missing from this celebration is God. There's no mention of God in this celebration. No giving thanks to him to be found. No honoring of his name. No recognition of God's work behind the scenes because it's God, it is God's hidden providence. But they don't, th these Jews are the people of God. And yes, they've been exiled, but they've been so assimilated into the Persian culture that, that they don't see the hand of God behind this. They, they celebrate their deliverance, but not because of what the Lord has done. Now, this is one of Israel's great enduring failures, forgetting God. And God, but, but here's the amazing thing. God saves them in spite of their sin. God saves them regardless of their forgetfulness. God saves them because he loves them. Even still, God protects his people and causes fear to rise up in the hearts of, of all those around them who are not Jews. And, and it's because God is faithful. In Deuteronomy 4, the writer says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, their enemies, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. 
But know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. In other words, the writer of Deuteronomy says, listen, all that God has done is not because of your righteousness. You didn't earn this. And the Jews here did not earn this. These Jews were in exile. They were in exile. They were expelled from the promised land because it turns out that they were as wicked as the pagan nations and the pagan kings around them. No, salvation has come to the Jews through Esther, but ultimately through God's hidden providence because the king goes through a sleepless night. He cannot sleep. And he reads about a memorable deed five years back, proving that God is truly, God is truly present when he seems most absent. God saved an entire race of people through a king's sleepless night. And not because these people were so worthy, but because God is so loving and so worthy. God's God's saving grace is at work in every chapter of Esther. And now it is most clearly seen as as Esther is a shadow of Christ as she pleads with the king to save her people. This shadow of Christ who stands before God's throne on our behalf. On On the day of judgment, Jesus will plead our case the same way that Esther pleaded hers. Her actions are an echo of the coming of Christ. Esther Esther offered herself as a sacrifice to save her people. She risked her life to come before the king. Jesus sacrificed his life that our lives might be saved. Esther intercedes with the king on, on the people's behalf to save them. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. The victory that Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people experienced, the deliverance and the salvation from death by Esther's interceding with the king is one that is such a wonderful echo of what Christ has done. In Esther, the old law, the old edict of Haman brought death to God's people. And Mordecai's new law brought life. Well, the law of Moses brings death. But in Christ... The new law written on our hearts brings us salvation. Listen, we don't have to defend ourselves because we can't. We can't defend ourselves by our righteousness. We can't defend ourselves by our goodness because we are not good and we are not righteous. There is no one righteous. There is no one that is good, only Christ. But when we come to faith in Christ, he closed us. He closed us in his righteousness. Now, as you're here today, you might not be a Christian. You might not have come to faith and put your trust in Christ. On Judgment Day, there will be no one pleading for you but yourself. If you've come and put your trust in Christ and His work on the cross, His death as a sacrifice for your sins, He will plead for you on that day. And that is a wonderful victory we have. But, but brothers and sisters, the victory is not yet complete. Mordecai's edict is one that saves the Jews. But as important as the edict is, the Jews' celebration is not yet a victory won, but one promised in the coming months as they're allowed to defend themselves. 
We live in a similar in-between time in our lives. The salvation we have in Christ is sure, it's secure, it's promised by God who is faithful. It is victory over sin and death that is ours in Christ and our future and our eternal destiny. It is secure, but until the day that Christ returns or we die, the final victory awaits. Until that time, our sanctification our transformation is an ongoing work in progress. We, we, live in a, we live in a broken and despairing world whose sin affects us every day. Our battle uh, against sin, our own sin affects us every day. And it can be painful and it can be overwhelming and it can be sad. But thankfully, as Christians, we don't, we don't fight from a defeated position where sin has power over our lives, but we fight. We fight from a victory Christ has won where sin no longer has dominion over us. Listen, as Sam asked Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is in Christ, yes. One day it will all come untrue. Because that's... The most important sadness has already come untrue for all who are Christians. The sadness of a life with no hope is undone because of the hope that we find in Christ. You know, in the book of Esther, Esther had to persuade Ahasuerus to rescue her people. Isn't it amazing that we do not have to persuade God to rescue us? Nor does Jesus have to persuade God to save us. God, God does not need to be convinced to save us. Long before we ever knew anything about salvation, God had planned it for us in eternity past. His initiative to rescue us and, and ransom us through the, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross is all because he loves us. Our, our salvation, listen, our, our salvation was not only his idea, but it was his achievement. And our only response, our only response is to praise him. Not, not like the Jews who forgot at the end of Esther 8, who forgot to, to praise God for their salvation, but as those who choose to remember his saving grace. And that's, that helps us right here. This chapter wonderfully helps us walk right into communion.